acted in the lives of Israel, but also, Lord, it's been good to see how this book points us to your son, Jesus, and the impact that makes in our lives. So, Lord, as we open up your word today, may it be more than just a study, may it, may it be more than just a lesson, but may your words be living and active in our hearts. May the study change us and point all of us to Jesus, your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You know, as I've gotten older, I've realized that some of the greatest gifts that you could receive are spending time with the people that, that you love. In fact, I had a birthday last month, and, and my, my daughter and son-in-law sent me a birthday card, and inside they simply wrote, um, our birthday gift to you is a weekend visit from us. And I was like, yeah, I'm looking, this is going to be fun. Now, when I was younger, I just I didn't get that. I couldn't understand it. And I would hear stories about how grandparents just want to spend time with their grandkids and, you know, hanging out with family. And I'm, I'm just thinking, I just want the gift. I just want the stuff, you know, the latest gadgets and all that. But as I've gotten older, I learned that spending time with the people that you love is a pretty cool thing. And... Sometimes just, just spending time together, whether you're eating a meal, whether you're playing games, whether it's a short visit or a long visit, can really be impactful. You know, I think that's why we love now hosting things like Thanksgiving or Christmas, where we can at least get the kids together in, in our house, under our roof, for at least a day together. And that is a pretty special time together. You know, today we draw to a close our study through the book of Exodus that we've called Out of Darkness. And we come to the final chapter of Exodus, this chapter 40, but it's not the final chapter of the story. Now, Moses and the Israelites, as we come to chapter 40, they'd completed the tabernacle, this place of worship, this portable tent called the tabernacle, and God's presence descends on the tabernacle. Now, in just a couple of weeks, we celebrate Easter. Now, Easter is the high point of our Christian faith, and it's the one thing that makes God's presence here and now possible in our lives. Now, it might not seem normal to do a sermon series through Exodus in this season of Lent that brings us up to Easter, but Easter ties right in with the book of Exodus because both are about God's presence in our lives, a presence that impacts us and changes us for eternity. See, as we look at this conclusion of the book of Exodus today, we realize that God's presence is enough, that Jesus is enough. So this morning, I want to draw a few lessons out of this final chapter, try to explain it a little bit, and then talk about how God's presence changes us and impacts us moving forward today, and even as we prepare for Easter today. Well, Exodus chapter 40 opens up in verse 1, was talking about the instructions of the Lord. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the month. 
So God gives these instructions first regarding the building itself, this tabernacle, this portable tent, which is called the tent of meeting, implying that this is the place where the Israelites will meet and encounter God. So he gives some really detailed instructions on, on where to put everything, that everything has a specific place. And the, all these furnishings, they're sacred furnishings. So he tells them where to put the Ark of the Covenant and, and to, to put the book of the law inside the Ark of the Covenant. Tells them where to set the table, uh, which is, holds the bread of the present, these 12 loaves of bread sig signifying and symbolizing God's presence with Israel. Tells them where to put that table. Tells them where to put the lampstands and the lamps and, and, the, and the gold altar of incense. Tells them how to hang the curtains and where to hang the curtains. And the setup goes on and on. It talks about the altar, altar of burnt offering, and the wash basin on where to put that and that you are to fill up the wash basin with water and how to set up the courtyard and the curtains at the entrance of the courtyard. So all of this work is done. This this incredible arranging of furnishings, arranging of this setup, arranging of the tabernacle, and then they anoint it and consecrate it. Verse 9 of the text says, anoint and consecrate everything in it because it will be holy. So they anoint the altar, the burnt offerings, and, and the utensils, and it will be holy. Anoint them, I mean, it literally means just to set them aside for worship. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be holy, and it simply means that you're set aside for God's use, special in God's eyes for him and him alone. When Dory and I lived back in, in Wisconsin, we had some good friends, and, and he, was, he was a chef, a, tr a true chef, and he, he made the best French onion soup that I've ever had to this day. And he was telling me the story one time of, you know, as a, as a true chef, he likes uh, very specific utensils to use in the kitchen. So he has like super high-end pots and pans and some really expensive chef knives that he uses for meal prep or whatever a chef knife is used for, for chefing, you know. Um, so he has these really expensive knives, right? And he comes home one day and he pulls into the driveway and he sees his wife out in the garden digging up tulip bulbs with his expensive chef knives. So let's just say that led to some marriage conflict and some long-term marriage counseling after that because his chef knives that were set apart, consecrated for, for chefing in the kitchen had been violated by digging in the garden. And as he's telling me the story, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what was she thinking? And she's thinking, you know, big deal, it's just knives. But to him, they were holy in that sense that they had a special purpose and could, should not be violated any other way. You know, these articles that are set aside in the tabernacle, they were for worship and worship alone. That's why it says over and over in chapter 40 that you are to anoint them and consecrate them. It's kind of like having good, the, the good furniture in your house, and it's the good furniture that you're not supposed to eat, uh, eat when you're sitting in it, you shouldn't drink when you're sitting in the good furniture. It's the special uh, the utensils. You know, my, my parents had a little box of silverware that would only come out at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and, you know, and don't you dare think about using it any other time of the week or the year. 
set aside for special occasions. And that, that's what is going on here at the temple to the nth degree, that these things were reserved for worship of God and worship alone. So he gives all of these instructions regarding the tabernacle itself and all the stuff within it. But God also gives instructions about the people who are to work within this temple, the priests themselves. And he says that you are to anoint and consecrate them also. So picking up in verse 12 of chapter 40, it says, Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint them, and consecrate him so that he may serve me as priest. So the furnishings were set aside on all the utensils. Now the priests were set aside. They were symbolically and ceremonially washed and then considered clean and able to uh, perform the functions of a priest. And then they would dress Aaron in these priestly garments and anoint the, the garments themselves and consecrate them. And then they did it, uh, same thing for his sons, and they anointed his sons. And, and the purpose of this clothing that they would wear was simply to, to illustrate and to demonstrate that these men are set aside for ministry purposes, that they, they, were, they were to serve in that area alone. Way back in the day when I was ordained into ministry, um, and, and entered into full-time work as a pastor, I knew that there would be seasons or periods where, where I would be able to perform official duties as a pastor. You know, I would officiate at weddings or officiate at funerals, namely. So I went out and bought my Marion and Berrien suit. And as the name implies, I would wear that suit whenever I would officiate a wedding or officiate a funeral. That's my Marion and Berrien suit. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't sacred in that sense, but it, it, it kind of made me feel official when I put it on, you know. And, and today, you're probably not going to see me wear a suit and tie unless I'm performing your wedding or your funeral. And if it's your funeral, it doesn't matter what I wear because you're not going to see me anyway. <laughs> but the significance there of these Old Testament priests was really just setting them aside just to show how important this worship of the Lord God was. These guys were, were that was their full-time job, was to serve in the, in the tabernacle. And as time went on in the history of Israel, that service and their work became more and more elaborate and more and more detailed. And they would rotate in and out of, of what their jobs would be, and, and they would have very specific um, ceremonial sacrifices that they would have to do because worship of God had to be done right and orderly and in a certain way. In fact, it was, it was so sacred that they could not um, carry out their offerings or carry out their sacrifices in, any, in, in an inappropriate way. Later on in their history, Aaron, Aaron's sons did that very thing. They, it tells us at another point that they offered up like unholy fire, or they were irreverent in their worship of God, and God literally strikes them dead because this was a serious deal, worship of him. So he gives some very ins specific instructions. And then the cool part is, is that we see Moses step in and we see how he obeys all of this stuff. 
verse 16 of Exodus 40. It says, Moses did everything as the Lord commanded him. So in steps Moses, and he just gets the job done. And I love that about it because there's this repeated phrase in chapter 40 regarding Moses. He just says, as the Lord commanded him. And that tagline would follow all of the things that he would do. He'd carry out the instructions. He would put the furnishings in the right place. He, he would anoint the utensils and get everything ready. He put the tablets in the ark. He set the ark inside the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. He spread, spread the tent over the tabernacle as the Lord commanded him. He placed the table of the bread in the tent of meeting as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tabernacle as the Lord commanded him. Eight different times that phrase is used in reference to Moses. And then verse 33, just this simple concluding line, and so Moses finished the work. Instructions were given, and Moses obeys and carries them out to the letter. This is biblical proof that a man actually read and followed the directions. Guys, take, take note. You know, Mo Moses is far from perfect. And l later on we read about uh, Moses' own disobedience in his life and that disobedience prevented him from entering the promised land that he was leading Israel towards. But here in Exodus 40, we see him following God's word obediently down to the very place of where to put something in the tabernacle. Everything was in place. The work was done. The only thing that was missing was the very reason they built all this stuff anyway. And that was the, the presence of God, the glory of God. So Moses does all the work. He arranges all this furniture, anoints everything possible, yet he could not fill the place with God's glory. Only God could do that. So there's the instructions, there's the obedience, and then we see, finally, the response of the Lord. In verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the crowd lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So once the work was done, once all those details were in place, God responds by descending and covering and filling the tabernacle. God shows up, in other words, in a powerful way. And twice that phrase is used, that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And that was really the purpose of the tabernacle in and of itself. It was, it was designed to be the place where Israel could meet the living God. It was this representation of God's presence among them as a people. But the interesting part 
is when God showed up on the scene, when, when the glory came down, when it filled the temple, access was denied. Moses couldn't even enter into, into it. Moses was the guy that set it up, that got everything in place, and then he himself could not enter into it because the glory was so intense that God's presence was there. And God just reveals this glimpse of himself, and I love that part. One commentator that I read this week on Exodus, he, he puts it this way. It says, the glory that filled the tabernacle was a spectacular, spectacular display of the radiance of God's being, the God of the Exodus, the God of power who made the heavens and the earth, the God of justice who plagued the Egyptians, the God of love who kept his covenant with Israel, the God of providence who led his people through the wilderness, the God of truth who gave them the law, the God of mercy who forgave their sins, the God of holiness who set them apart for service, this great God was now present in glory. So when the people looked at the tabernacle, they could see that God was in the house. So what about us? How, how do we respond to the Lord God? Now, Exodus ends with God's presence with his people, Exodus ends here at chapter 40, but God's presence does not. If you look, if you're to flip the page in your Bible, the book of Leviticus begins with instructions regarding bringing an offering to the Lord, an offering designed to keep that relationship and presence alive and well. So from Genesis all the way to, to Revelation, we see God's desire to be present in our lives. But we also see how disobedience and sin destroys that relationship over and over again. But enter Jesus in the New Testament, and we see how Jesus destroys the grip of sin once for all. And through Jesus, we have a relationship that is now possible. We have this possibility of God's presence in us day after day where sacrifices do not have to be offered time and time again. So what does God's presence mean for us, for our lives today? Well, it means freedom from bondage of sin. It means hope as we continue on in our journey of life. It means guidance and direction on the right path to take as we dig into his word. And it means joy in the moments of life because we find our joy in him and not in anything else. So do we need to like arrange the furniture in our house in a certain way? No. Do we need to anoint and pour oil on our clothing and furniture? No. But do we need to follow God's word? Yes, we do. Do we need to follow Jesus? Yes, we do. Last week in the sermon, I mentioned, talked about John 1, Verse 14, and I want to come back to that this morning because it really ties together Jesus and, and the Exodus. Because there in John 1, 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, that's like language pulled right out of Exodus chapter 40, isn't it? 
And, and the word dwelling there literally means tabernacled. It means to pitch a tent, to dwell inside a tent. And I remember when I was in Bible college and that was pointed out to me as one of those like mind-blowing things. It's like, oh, so this is tied back to the Old Testament and it became so real to us of what Jesus has done for us. And it ties us back to that movable tent in the wilderness, but it also ties us to Jesus right here and now. That we can get a glimpse of God's glory through his son. So do you want to know what God looks like? Look at the Gospels. Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God's glory look, looks like? Look at Jesus in the Gospel. Do you want to know what it looks like to follow God? Look at Jesus in the Gospels. You see, the book of Exodus and this whole tabernacle thing, it, it's really about the Gospel. It's really about God coming and dwelling with us today and changing our lives today. You know, when I began the sermon series uh, seven weeks ago, I, I said that I hope and pray that you can see Jesus throughout these sermons. And Jesus as the Messiah, he's fully God, he's fully man, and he's here now and forever. And we, we began this, this study, we pointed to the gospel in each of the pages as we brought the messages. And how the story of Exodus is ultimately our story. Because it's how God has, has brought us out of sin, out of the darkness of sin in our life. And, and this is so much more than just, you know, a lesson in ancient history. It's so much more than just Sunday school lessons about the plagues. This is God, God's redemptive story. A redemptive redemption that unfolds in our lives today when we say yes to Jesus. You see, the, the tabernacle experience in Exodus 40 is part of the bigger story of God's desire to dwell with his people. The story began in page 1 of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, and it continues uh, past Revelation 21. So to summarize it, we, we could say that God, the God of heaven, dwelt with humanity in the Garden of Eden. Then sin enters the picture, humanity rebels against God, and God's holy presence becomes dangerous to humanity. But God doesn't give up on that desire and plan to dwell among his people. So God rescues Israel out of Egypt, and he meets them at Mount Sinai. And he, he has his tabernacle built as a plan to promise that he will dwell amongst his people. And in time, this, this tent, this tabernacle, is replaced by a permanent dwelling called the, the temple. And the temple is built in the same proportions, just to a larger scale. Again, symbolizing God's presence with his people. And his plan is ultimately filled, fulfilled in the coming of Christ as God in the flesh dwells among us. And now he fills us as believers, he fills the church, and ultimately his plan will be revealed and realized in the new creation that we read about in Revelation chapter 21. Because from Genesis to chapter 1 to Revelation 21, we see his presence. And there in Revelation 21, it says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. I love that. 
That's how the scripture closes. Just like, yes, we have this promise of a new creation. We have a promise that God will never leave us. Journey, Jesus is the ultimate exodus. He's the the ultimate one that brings us out of the darkness of sin. Through his death and resurrection, we have that liberation. Now God is with us, present here now forever. And he's leading us, not by a cloud during the day and a pillar fire at night, but he leads us through his Holy Spirit and his word. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up this morning. And, And as they do, just want to remind you that to all of those who trust in Jesus, he's given us this promise of everlasting presence. You know, as, as Jesus was leaving earth, he left his disciples and he leaves us with a mission and a promise. The mission is to go and make disciples. And then the very last phrase of the very last uh, part of the book of Matthew, the very last words he gives to his disciples, he says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, just as the God was with the Israelites to the end of their journey, Jesus has promised to be with us forever. And you know what? We're still on that same mission to go and make disciples. And we still have that promise that he will be with us forever. So this great God of the Exodus that we've been looking at for these past weeks, he is the one that rescues us from the Egypt of our sin. He's the one that redeems us by the blood of the Lamb, and he is the one that receives us into his everlasting glory. You know what? Jesus wants to rescue you. He wants to redeem you, and he wants to receive you into his glory. You know what, Journey? Jesus is enough to do all that in our lives. So I don't know where you are at today in that journey, but I pray that you can say yes to Jesus because he wants to bring you into his presence, into his everlasting glory. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for the book of Exodus that on the surface might seem, you know, just like ancient history. But Lord, your word is alive and active. Your word points us to Jesus, your son, and Jesus, your son, wants to dwell within us and change us. So Father, I pray for each man and woman here this morning that we can open up our hearts to you, say yes to you, to allow you to change us from the inside out. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand and sing with us. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness 
tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could so great a mercy what heart could fathom such boundless grace the god of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame the cross has spoken The King of Kings calls me His own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living Lord. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. salvation in your name jesus christ my living hope hallelujah praise the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Then came the morning that sealed the promise, your buried body began to breathe out of silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me jesus yours is the victory